I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Fauci has co-authored a perspective article on the novel H7N9 influenza virus and the evolution of pandemic viruses. Dr. Fauci, you note in your article that the H7N9 influenza virus that recently emerged in China is similar to the H5N1 virus that had a high case fatality rate in humans several years ago. Can you walk us through the similarities and the differences between the two? Well, first of all, both H5N1 and H7N9 are not fundamentally human viruses. They're bird viruses, both of which have infected chickens, which have been the source of infection to the rare human who comes into contact. So that's one of the similarities. Also, the similarity that is important is that in the rare human that does get infected, the fatality rate compared to the normal fatality rates that you see, for example, with the seasonal influences that we've seen that readily transmit from human to human, the mortality is extraordinarily low, less than a fraction of a percent, a little bit higher in people who have diseases that compromise their capability to respond to that. But to have the kinds of mortalities for H5N1, it's close to 60%. For H7N9, it's about 29 to 30%. So th- those are the similarities. There are some interesting differences also. One of the important differences that have to do with surveillance is that that H5N1 falls under the category of highly pathogenic avian influenza compared to the H79A, which is called a low pathogenic avian influenza by high and low means that the H5N1 very readily kills chickens. So the people who do the surveillance can easily detect where the virus is in chicken flocks, whereas the H7N9, it is difficult to accept if you go around doing a lot of diagnostic tests. It isn't obvious like looking at a chicken yard full of dead chickens. You know you have a problem there. So those are some of the important differences. The other one is that the H7N9 virus is not seen in broad farm chicken collections. It is seen in markets, in chicken markets where you bring in not only chickens, but quails and turkeys and pigeons and others, so that it is not really as widespread on the farms as it is in the chicken markets, whereas H5N1 was much more widely spread among chicken flocks, both outside and inside the market. So those are some of the obvious differences and similarities between the two. So what hypotheses about H7N9 can we generate based on those similarities and differences? Well, the importance of similarities and differences has to do not only with hypotheses, but how you approach it. For example, the fact that the Chinese have closed the open markets where they sell poultry and other birds and other animals has had a significant impact on slowing down and almost bringing to a halt the kinds of infections that we have been seeing. That is really important and has to do with the issue that I mentioned that it wasn't a question of having to cull a lot of chickens throughout the country. They really did a very important thing by closing down the open markets. The other issue is that the hypothesis 
that you can generate by showing the similarity that there's incredible exposure of humans to infected chickens. There's no doubt about that. And yet, if you look at the number of infections, relatively speaking, they're very, very, very few compared to the people who we know as a fact are getting exposed, be it in a market or on a farm for H5N1 or in a chicken market for H7N9, and yet an extraordinarily small proportion of them are actually getting infected. And those who are getting infected are individuals who are having a high morbidity and mortality. Because when you do zero surveys, there aren't a lot of people at all who are getting infected and clearing the infection relatively easily, which is what you see commonly every season with seasonal flu. So one of the hypotheses that one can generate from the fact that you have high level of exposure to chickens, relatively small, really small percentage of people who get infected, and yet a relatively high mortality, is that this is a virus that is poorly, very poorly adaptable to transmissibility to individuals and certainly extremely poorly adapted to transmission among individuals. So it is hypothesized that the people who are getting infected might have, and this is purely a hypothesis, might have a genetically susceptible process going on where someone who's completely unrelated, who doesn't have a genetic susceptibility to either getting infected and responding poorly, can be exposed to the same market with the same virus flying around for the chickens who are not sick, who are giving you an infected, or in the case of H5N1 in chickens who are infected, the virus itself is selecting out those genetically susceptible people. Now, we don't know what that genetic susceptibility is, but the idea that in a crowded market, you can have thousands and thousands and thousands of people exposed to the same chickens, and yet only a very, very, very small percentage are getting infected. And those that are, are not doing well at all, anywhere from a 30 to a 60% mortality. That just smacks of a genetic predisposition to getting infected and getting very sick. So that's one of the prevalent hypotheses that's emerging out of what we're observing with epidemiological and clinical data. Looking at that question from the other side, what, if anything, do we know about the conditions that might favor evolution in the virus to become more transmissible? Well, that's a very complicated issue. Viruses that evolve to become more transmissible, you look at history. Now, one of the things with influenza is that you could take a historical perspective, but you have to keep right on the front burner that influenzas are fundamentally unpredictable in many ways, but predictable in some ways. If you look to the time when we were able to document a viral cause of a particular pandemic, namely something that was not in humans before and then came in with a ravaging effect. And with that, you go back to the 1918 H1N1 pandemic. From the 1918 pandemic and likely even before that, as early as 1830 or 1890s by extrapolation, you can say that there really, since then up until the present, has been no highly adaptable virus to cause a pandemic except one that has either the H1, the H2, or the H3 hemagglutinin. And virtually every pandemic that we've had from 1957 following 
the 1918 from 1968 and the most recent one in 2009 with the H1N1 so-called swine flu of 2009, you can trace that by genetic fingerprints back to the 1918. And one of the things that invariably happens is that there's recycling of antigens that usually takes place when a virus goes either from a bird or a pig or whatever and starts reassorting different genes. We have not seen a direct straight line mutation to mutation to mutation without going into another species like a pig or another mammal that would then help it to accumulate by reassortment the genes that would make it much more readily adaptable not only to infecting humans but to propagating itself by having sustained transmission. Because if you look at chicken viruses that just mutate a bit, that do not, I would say even more broadly, bird viruses that then go into a chicken, you have seen throughout the years infections with bird viruses that tend to jump the species into a human even though there's a lot of exposure to these chickens, very, very few humans get infected. Again, getting back to the point that there might be some genetic susceptibility. And usually it burns itself out. There may be a few infections, could be some high degree of morbidity or not. But in general, because it lacks the ability to sustain transmission, it dies out. The only viruses that we have seen historically since 1918 that have been able to adapt itself to sustained transmissibility are viruses that have had the opportunity to reassort and recycle genes, usually in a mammalian host before it gets into a human, or when it's in a bird or whatever animal, it already has the capability of adapting very, very well to humans. So those are some of the things that we learn historically when you look at the track record of viruses that are similar to the H7N9 and similar to the H5N1. You mentioned that H7N9 is asymptomatic in birds. What's the significance of that? Well, the significance has everything to do with the ease of identification of infected birds themselves. Now, of course, if you went around and looked at with sensitive tests, you could determine a bird is infected or not, but it's logistically very difficult to do that, whereas if you have, like the H5N1, if you have a situation where the birds are dying because of what we call the highly pathogenic avian influenza virus like we see with H5, it's relatively easy to see the scope of what the epidemiology is among the chickens. Whereas with H7N9 being low pathogenic, it's difficult to do that, except if you get to a logistically difficult approach. One of the things that is interesting is that it is likely that since H7N9, when it has been tested, is not as widespread among the farms in China, where the chickens would come from the farms then to get into the bird market where people would buy them. It is likely that 
a rare or unusual group of chickens that were infected with the H7N9 got into the markets and then readily infected many of the other chickens in that market so that it isn't that it was widespread in the farms and then when it came to the markets, it just infected the markets. It probably was not very well distributed in the farms and a select group of chickens that got into the markets were the ones that infected and that is fortified, that hypothesis, by the fact that when the Chinese appropriately closed down the markets, you saw a dramatic stopping of the new infections. And it's been relatively stable for a couple of weeks right now as a result of the closing of the markets. So that, again, is a hypothesis that has some pretty good foundation based on what happened in response to closing the chicken markets. So do you think that that closing of the markets was what led to the cessation of transmission, or are there other factors at work as well? Well, when you're dealing with a number of unknowns, you can't say with absolute certitude that that's the case. But the temporal association with the closing of the markets and the essentially halting of the trajectory of the new infections is very powerful evidence that the closing of the markets was a very important factor in what's gone on epidemiologically. One issue with new influenza viruses is developing appropriate vaccines quickly enough to be useful. Do you think that the cell culture approach to vaccine development will solve the problem, or should something else be done to accelerate the process of developing countermeasures? Well, I think as a scientist who's been involved in vaccine development and in influenza, that it is helpful to have made the transition from the chicken-based to a cell culture-based approach to getting enough virus to get a vaccine, be it a inactivated or an attenuated influenza vaccine. But I feel strongly that that's not the solution to the problem. In order to be able to develop vaccines quickly enough, we have to get new vaccine platforms. And by new vaccine platforms, I'm talking about not thinking of a better way to grow the virus. We've got to be able to get a vaccine without having to rely on growing an extraordinary amount of bulk virus that that you then convert into a vaccine. We've got to jump to the next level of sophistication of recombinant DNA technologies, some of the new things that have come out now with DNA-based virus with DNA-based vaccines, with vector-based vaccines, with recent papers, for example, using nanoparticles or virus-like particles. That's the vaccinology of the future. Uh, One of the things that is critical to all of this is what we're putting a lot of effort in, we being the scientific community, is the development of what we call a universal influenza vaccine that can be used in a way that would give protection against a wide range of different types of influenza A, not only among the H1, H2, H3, very common human type hemagglutinins, but also some of the H5s and H7s and others that fall within two major subgroups of influenza. To get a universal flu vaccine, that you can make a vaccine on the basis of a sequences of virus that you put into a vector or into a DNA plasmid or what have you, that would induce neutralizing antibodies against a broad range of influenza. That's the way to go. Not saying that it isn't better to do it in a cell than a egg. It is certainly helping to have it in a cell culture, but that's not the end game. The end game is new vaccine platforms. 
In terms of diagnosis, have tests for H7N9 been developed? Well, there are two types of tests when you're looking for H7N9. It depends on whether you want to do a sero survey or whether you want to determine if someone or a particular bird or a particular person is infected. There are two different ways. Serosurveys rely on antibodies. Now, the caveat when you do a serosurvey with H7N9 is that the human immune response to H7N9 is very poor, so you may not pick it up since it's a weak response, and even in some of the birds, the response is not overwhelming from a serosurvey standpoint. So although that's the gold standard way when you're trying to determine the prevalence, particularly in a subclinical way, in the community, in this case in the community of humans and possibly in animals, that's an antibody test. The test that's the definitive test for H7N9 or any virus that we do now is real-time PCR, which is a molecular technique that is now used widely with a number of viruses. The CDC has been involved in developing real-time PCR assays, or you could culture the virus. Culture is a little bit more time-consuming, whereas real-time PCR can give you the diagnosis right away. So it comes down to two things. You want to do it from an epidemiological survey standpoint, that's antibody. You want to make a definitive diagnosis, you either culture or what we're doing much more preferably right now is real-time PCRs. So is it possible that H7N9 has been circulating for some time, but we didn't have tools sensitive enough to detect it? You know, I think the opposite of that. I think that we always could benefit from more sensitive tools, but the tools is not the problem. The tools right now are fine. We just do not do enough surveillance. Words, if there had been good animal surveillance among pigs a few years ago, we would have seen in some of the swine that the viruses that were percolating in there were highly adaptable to transmission in humans, but we don't have the surveillance systems operating in an optimal way, even with the tools we have. So I'm always ready and interested in more sensitive tools, but if you're not well using the tools that you have, that's the current lesion right now. It isn't that we have to wait for more sensitive tools. We have to implement them by better surveillance among animals. Given, though, the inherent uncertainty about how dangerous an infectious pathogen may be, how do we decide what an appropriate response should be? Well, what you need to do is you need to do good fundamental pathogenesis research, which, you know, in some respects has been a little bit controversial, namely to try and really understand, and there are different ways to do that, to really understand what are the steps that make a virus go from something that's out there but not causing any harm to something that you really need to prepare for. What has been done historically, and I think appropriately, is that you don't want to start making vaccines against something that hasn't yet shown the ability to infect humans just because it's out there. If you understand the pathogenesis and the relationship between the pathogenesis in a bird and the pathogenesis in a human and the determinants of not only transmissibility, because there's a big difference between jumping species 
and the new species, in this case being human, being a dead end or a relative dead end, maybe with some family clusters and then a dead end, versus something that would jump species and take off like a horse race where you go right through very efficient transmissibility. We don't fully understand those mechanisms, and that's why it's important to continue to do good fundamental basic research in understanding with better molecular biological techniques, with better understanding of the evolutionary capabilities of viruses, so that we'd be able to predict better when we're in more danger of something that really is going to turn into a pandemic versus something that's going to dead end. So that's where the fundamental basic in clinical science comes in. Thank you, Dr. Fauci.